The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. This week's episode of Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is brought to you by the Celebrant Foundation and Institute's new book, Life Cycle Ceremonies, A Handbook for Your Whole Life which is now available on Amazon and Kindle. Make ceremonies matter more and become a certified life cycle celebrant at celebrantinstitute.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today, Nancy Ellen Abrams, will be featured in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health Magazine. She's one of the world's leading thinkers on cosmology and its impact on how we understand our place in the universe. Her last book, The New Universe and the Human Future, which she co-wrote with her husband Joel Premack, won the Nautilus Gold Award for Best Science Book of 2011. And her new book, the book we're going to be talking about today, is called A God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. And this book promises to be at least, if not even more, influential. Nancy Abrams, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much, Rami. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you on. I mean, your books are so fascinating. Before we get into exactly what you understand God to be and all the rest of that, I'm just curious how the book is doing and who's pulling their hair out and who's applauding. Well, interestingly, more religious people are interested in a new version of God. And it seems to me that the people who are most threatened, judging from bloggers and various reviewers, are atheists and I did not expect this because my view is entirely consistent with science, but it seems that many atheists, even really smart people, feel that their job is to uh, deny the supernatural version of God. And if I don't offer them a supernatural version, they don't know what to do with it. And that that's really central to what you're saying. When you talk about a God that could be real, you sort of open with the idea, and I'm quoting you, if we look for God in what is real, the argument about God's existence is over, and we begin to discover its true nature and relationship to us. So I imagine, and you can clarify now what you mean by real, but what you're talking about is the non-supernatural, the real is the natural, and supernatural you would consider unreal. Is that fair? Well, it's not really that simple, because... Um of course, supernatural is not real, but what real is, uh, is something we're only discovering with the most cutting edge, uh, cosmology that's happening today. The bottom line here is that you can't know what's real or unreal until you know what universe you're living in. It really depends on the laws of your universe. And my husband, as you mentioned before, is one of the scientists who has helped to discover and put together the modern picture of the universe. And I have been living with the development of this theory for almost 35 years. So I'm very, very steeped in it. So to me, real means real in the modern universe that we now know is made mostly of dark matter and dark energy that began in cosmic inflation. The modern picture, what's possible in that universe 
is what's real to me, not what's possible on a common sense level. So I know that, at least is my understanding, that when your husband, Joel Primack, was theorizing about dark energy and dark matter, it was very controversial. I mean, you couldn't and you can't point to it exactly. So when he was doing that and you were involved in the very beginning as well, did people consider that real or unreal? <laughs> well, that... um First of all, only scientists knew about it, and they don't think in those terms. They think in terms of theories, and can we test it, and does it make interesting predictions, and if it does, will those predictions be true? That's the way they think about it. So for them, a theory is something that can be extremely useful and needs to be tested basically forever. They never give up testing it. People are still testing uh, the theory of relativity, trying to find holes in it <laughs> after 100 years. So... That's what a theory is. It's our, it's working knowledge. And the more data that lines up to support it, the more reliable that theory is. But it never becomes absolute truth. Except under some but, but you're talking about this modern cosmology, which is including, if not essentially, about dark matter, dark energy. And you're saying that's the real universe. So is real the best word to use or reliable? It's our most reliable picture. The word real is something that is a social consensus. It has to be a social consensus. If one person says that such and such a state of being is real and everyone else disagrees, then even if that one person is right, he's going to be considered insane because that's just how we use the word real. So what I'm trying to do is to move the consensus. I am trying to say we need to use our best scientific understanding of the universe and consider that to be the basis of reality because there's nothing better. I'm not trying to sell an idea and say, this is the word of God, you have to believe me. That is not at all what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say I have a really interesting way of looking at God. It's based on the way that scientists look at the universe. You know, test it. Test it. Try this idea out. See if it works in your life. My idea of God is now what I'm talking about. Shoot it down if you can. I have a blog. You can write to me. I want to work this thing out. I'm not presenting it as a completed, you know, dogma for sure. So give us the, the gist of, of your understanding of God. My understanding is that I, first of all, I'm only interested in God if it's real. Real, as I said, has to be real in this universe. So I asked myself, is there anything that could actually exist in this universe that would be worthy of being called God? Because that would be real for me, for a person like me. And the one thing that I realize does live up to that standard is that there can be an emergent phenomenon from us. Let me just step back and say what an emergent phenomenon is. Emergence is a concept that explains how from a system with many parts, as those parts interact, something on a larger scale emerges, which is completely different, unpredictable, follows new laws. Example, we are each made of trillions of cells, but we're not just cells. If we were just the sum total of our cells, we'd just be this large slobbering mass of unconsciousness. But what has arisen from the way those cells interact with each other is a human being with consciousness and the ability to love and to reason and so forth. So everything that makes us human has emerged from the simpler parts of us because of the way they interact together. So using that idea, I felt that if we thought about all of humanity's aspirations, all of the aspirations, not only of those of us alive today, but of all of our ancestors who invented cooking and language and art and science and so forth, all of those things, 
All of those aspirations working together have to have created something on a higher level. Something has to have emerged from the complexity of all of that going on. And that is God for me, because it is truly godlike. It's infinite, and yet it is directly connected to each of us. It feeds our aspirations. It's fed by our aspirations. For me, that totally works. So obviously you've turned this entire idea of God creating people on its head, and now it's people creating God, though I don't know if creating is the right word, but human beings, God becomes an emergent property of humanity. Yes, but that doesn't mean that we created God, because emergent phenomena arise through the law of nature, not through the intentions of the individual parts that feed into it. So, for example, our cells did not intentionally decide to create a superior being to them. It's just what happened. And the same thing with people. We did not intend to create God. God emerged from the way that we interact. But then the way that we interact with God, with this emergent phenomenon that is permanently connected to us, also helps us in our daily lives. It's a two-way street. So I'm going to come back to that in a second, and you can explain to us how this emerging God is of help to us. But I want to ask you a more basic question first. So I understand what you're saying as far as, well, I understand what you're saying in general, I think. And the notion that cells reach a level of complexity, that you get the emergent property of self-consciousness and humanity emerges and all, all of that. But I am still, I might identify with your blubbering mass of cells, <laughs> unconscious <laughs> cells. That's me most of the time, I think. But without my cells, I don't exist. So are you saying that God is an emergent property explicitly of humans? Yes, absolutely. Oh. That God is the God of humanity as a species but not of anything else. God is a planetary phenomenon. So there could be other gods emerging on other planets with other evolved conscious beings. Yes. So could there be, and then we're going to go back to how God helps us, but I'm very curious because this is very human-centric, I mean anthropocentric. So this is God is an emergent property of humanity. If humanity, now just bear with me and then you can tell me that I'm just a romantic and this has nothing to do with science. But if humanity is an emergent property of the planet, and the planet is an emergent property of the solar system, et cetera, and go all the way back to the you know, Big Bang, even though there's no one directing it and the Big Bang didn't intend it. Why limit God as an emergent property of humanity rather than say that God is an emergent property of the universe, that the universe is developing in such a way as to evolve God? But it is. It is an emergent property of the universe. How do you think we got here? Everything is an emergent property of the universe. Okay, so why limit it to us? We are not interacting with intelligence on any other planet anywhere. We don't even know if it exists. I mean, right now, uh, scientists have already discovered close to 5,000 extrasolar planets, and they are really studying them and discovering them at quite a fast rate. And the amazing thing about it, Rami, is that none of the ones that have been studied are anything like Earth. We're actually living on an extraordinary planet. And people should not underestimate how rare Earth is, at least in this part of the galaxy, because we have wonderful conditions here that don't exist anywhere else. We have water all year long. We have an orbit that's practically round. Most planets are on these extreme ellipses where they zoom in close to their star and then zoom out far into space so that they have extremely uneven conditions, making it very hard for life to evolve. There may not be life anywhere near us. So how could anything else have interacted? with us in order to form an emergent phenomenon of God. The only interactions that actually exist are among us humans. Yeah, I was thinking more in terms of 
if humanity arose in multiple parts of the planet, perhaps God arises in multiple parts of the universe. They would be different gods. Though. They would be different gods. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating idea. I don't understand why atheists are up in arms about it. It seems to me that religious people would be just apoplectic about this notion. I know, doesn't it? It doesn't it. It surprised me too, but really the atheist blogs are just, they're terrified. The very Because I think they're allergic to the idea of God, to the very word. Just the word and itself. The fact yeah. that the word could actually mean something for people who are alive today, for people who live in a scientific world but have spiritual longings and really need to have a good metaphor that they can use to express their connection to the larger universe, which is what God is. People want that, and I think atheists don't want people to have it. But, but they don't. Okay, I mean, I, I can't speak for atheists, but... Well, I can because I used to be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But you find meaning in the word God. I mean, obviously, you're defining it in, in this way. This is the God of your understanding. I think that the word scares a lot of people. It scares religious people because they're afraid of their, the God of their imagining. And it scares uh, maybe the atheist community because they don't want to even imagine that the word has any value whatsoever. So you're saying, though, that this not only does this word mean something, and it means something real that we can test, but you're also saying it can be of assistance, right? It's of help to us. It is of enormous help, and this is the only reason I've actually written this book. The only reason I actually even got interested in the topic of God was that I needed it, was that I found myself in a 12-step program where I was told I had to turn my decisions over to a higher power. And I thought, what? There's no way I'm going to believe in a higher power. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in that sort of thing. But when I simply pretended to do it, and I let my mind explore the possibilities of there being a higher power, my whole life changed. My behavior improved. I got along better with everybody. I was happier. I I wasn't conning myself, which is something I have a tendency to do. I can't even explain all the changes that happened in my life from acting as if I had a higher power. At that point, I realized there is something to this, and I have to figure out what it is. And that's what led me on my quest. So I think there's a distinction between acting as if there were a higher power and thinking of the higher power in more classical terms. And what you're actually arguing in the book, which makes it so powerful, is that there is a higher, larger, greater power of which we're all a part because it's emerging from us. So given the actual understanding of God that you have, how do you turn your life over to that? My life is really one decision at a time. And I find that if I just spin a decision around in my brain, I will probably come up with something similar to what I did before. But if I step back and I think of myself in my full cosmic identity, I am part of an emerging phenomenon, which is God. I am part of something huge that is connected not only to my ancestors, but to all of our future descendants, if we have them. When I think of myself on that scale, I realize that I have a responsibility on that scale, that I have an identity on that scale, that I even have an afterlife on that scale. And that changes my behavior. That really puts me into a better frame of mind, makes me see in the long term. It makes me take things seriously that should be taken seriously and don't take seriously things that are trivial and of no importance. It has all kinds of benefits for me. And that's just the personal benefits. It sounds like, and, and this is one thing I got from the book, when you understand your idea of God, you're almost too big for an addiction. That an addiction speaks to the egoic level, and when you're identifying with this emergent God, you're really too big. It's just, it's a freeing thing. It really is. So tell me a little bit, because I know people, are, I mean, you dropped this on us, and I know people are going to be interested. So when you talk about afterlife, what do you have in mind? 
Well, of course, no one knows exactly what's going to happen to them after they die as individuals. I don't even think that's a meaningful question. Let me just say, you and I are both Jewish. I think we go to Florida. <laughs> I think that happens before we die. My mother's oh, still oh, there. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so the one thing we know for sure that happens to us after we die is we become ancestors. And we can either become esteemed ancestors or reviled ancestors. And it's going to be one or the other. It's not going to be neutral because the people who are on this earth today, starting from the babies all the way up to the old people, we are the chosen people. We were not chosen for any merit. We were chosen simply by the accident of being born at a turning point for our species. And we are at a turning point. We are at a point where the carbon in the atmosphere is shooting up almost straight now. In a, I've been talking about the mathematical curve. The population is shooting up. The use of resources is shooting up. The destruction of the habitat of animals is shooting up. There are so many dangerous trends, and they're connected, and they're global. And if humanity can get a handle on them, we could have a billion years on this planet with good conditions. We don't mess the conditions up. The sun will not become too hot for almost a billion years. That's the kind of future that we could have. And whether we have it or not is going to be determined by the people who are alive today. And that's why I say we're the chosen people. We have to start thinking in the much longer term. We have to start seeing ourselves as much bigger beings than just individuals. We have this enormous responsibility to our entire species. Yes. And when I see myself that way, my behavior is better and more valuable. So it's like we say in, in Judaism, may her memory be a blessing. And that's what you're talking about being a revered ancestor. Yeah, because if you're going to be a revered ancestor and you know you're doing the right thing for that, you can enjoy the high of being an esteemed ancestor right now. You don't have to wait till you're dead. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. And if I understand myself to be part of this emerging God, then my, my relationship with the rest of the planet changes. I think that's what you're saying. And that if we all did that, then we would live in such a way that the planet has its billion year future ahead of it. But we don't. We don't understand how to think about it. People don't have any kind of spiritual common ground right now. The main common ground that people have around the world is consumerism, entertainment, and a sort of vague sense of self-determination. That's pretty much all people share. And that has not been enough to motivate us. We don't share a God. We don't share a religion. We don't share a value system. But we could because there's one thing that's true for everyone around the world, and that's science. And if we can build on that, if we can have a God that arises out of that, that makes sense, that's real in our scientific universe, but also connected to us, then we can have the kind of common ground that global cooperation could be built on. How can people realize this God? Do you recommend meditation? Do you recommend, I mean, is there something that listeners could experiment with that would lead them to this realization that you've had? Well, uh, the first thing they could do really is go to my website. I have two websites. One is a God that could be real dot com. And that has all kinds of information about my ideas in the book. And the other one is my personal website, Nancy Ellen Abrams dot com. And there I've just started a blog. And seriously, for listeners, I want you to try to shoot this idea down. I want to test it. I want to find the holes in it. I also want you to help me build it up because this is the beginning of something 
that could be very big and extremely valuable. But one person could never do this alone. So write to me on my blog, ask questions, make contributions. Let's get a conversation going. Well, that's a great way to end. Thank you very much. My guest today was Nancy Ellen Abrams. You can learn more about her work, as she just told us, at her blog, nancyellenabrams.com. So, Nancy, thank you so much for being with us today on Essential Conversations. Thank you, Rami. This week's show was sponsored by the Celebrant Foundation and Institute. Learn how to create meaningful rituals for people of any faith and none and become a certified life cycle celebrant at celebrantinstitute.org. And check out the Foundation's new book, Life Cycle Ceremonies, A Handbook for Your Whole Life, now available at Amazon and Kindle. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. And we ask that you visit their website, spiritualityhealth.com, to subscribe to the magazine and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Liz Winter, and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.